But this is a despotic regime that has been indoctrinating its own population for 30 years with anti-Armenianism and Armenophobia. Who would want to live in Artsakh under the Azerbaijani despotic regime? Today, above 100,000 Armenians were ethnically cleansed and they're in Armenia. How are you going to convince them to go back to their homes and live under Azerbaijan, where their children have been killed during the war, where their fathers have been killed, where their families have been maimed? I mean, who would go and live there? That's Bedros Dermatosyan, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Bedros Dermatosyan on Armenia, Artsakh, and Azerbaijan. Quickly lost in media coverage was a conflict that ended recently between the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh in Armenian, and Azerbaijan. It resulted in the ethnic cleansing of the Armenian enclave. This is a huge blow to the millennial old Armenian people. Their land was under siege by Azerbaijan. On September 19th, Azerbaijan invaded. The outnumbered and outgunned Armenians had little chance against their more powerful neighbor. By the end of September, there were hardly any Armenians left in their ancient homeland. Armenians, the people who have endured massacres and genocide, are resilient, and they will heal their wounds and bounce back. Our guest today is Bedros Dermatosyan. He's professor of modern Middle East history at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. He's the author of The Horrors of Adana, and editor of Denial of Genocides in the 21st Century. I talked with Bedros Dermatosyan in mid-October. Welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. The September 19th Azerbaijan attack on the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is called Artsakh in Armenian, has literally disappeared from media coverage. But I'd like you to talk about the history of the conflict and its origins. And, uh, you know, it's very common to say, well, the Soviet Union was collapsing in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and then fighting broke out between two of the Soviet socialist republics, Azerbaijan and Armenia. And so you had the seeds of the crisis began there. But where's a good place to start? I think a good place to start is go back to history. The region of what's known Nagorno-Karabakh has always been populated by Armenians. The majority were Armenians. So in the course of history, uh, the region had its own uh, leadership, its own princes, such as the five princes in the early modern period, such as the Meliks of Gulistan, Jurabert, Khachen, and Varanda. But uh, the region has been also a crucial point of contention between the different political forces in the region, such as uh, Russia and uh, Persia. And uh, it is only in the 19th century that Karabakh became a protectorate of the Russian Empire by the Kurekchai Treaty. And following the Persian-Russian War, 
1804-1813, the Karabakh was ceded by the Persians to the Russian Empire per the Treaty of Gulistan. So after 1813 now, Nagorno-Karabakh becomes part of the Russian domination. At the time, it had 90.8% of its population were Armenians. So it remains until the, un, under the Russian domination of the Russian Empire until, let's say, the beginning of the formation of the Soviet Union. Or still, it is under the Soviet rule to that extent. But the region, the contention of the region, does not start with the Soviet Union. It also intensifies at the beginning of the 20th century by the classic Russian divide-and-conquer methodology that it used to create tensions between the different ethnic groups within the region of the Caucasus. As you know, Karabakh is in the South Caucasus, an important strategic position. And uh, it is in 1918, for example, that the Karabakh Council was established, and the leaders always have wanted it to be part of Armenia, because they consider the land to be an Armenian land. And you have this period in the post-World War I period that you have different forces trying to claim Karabakh to themselves, whether these are the Azerbaijani forces, whether these are the Kemalist forces, and whether these are whether this is General Antranik from the Armenians or Duro, the Dashnak leader. So you have a lot of kind of pull and push uh, trying to secure Karabakh. The real problem starts, I think, not between the Armenians and the and the Azerbaijanis, but with the Soviet nationality policies, with the Soviet Union trying to create demographic engineering by putting one ethnic group in a majority of another ethnic group and creating these tensions. So it was in 1921 that Nagorno-Karabakh was created as an autonomous oblast within the Soviet Azerbaijan. Of course, until 1921, Armenians of the region wanted to be part of the uh, newly part of Armenia per se, whether it was independent Armenia that was established after the Armenian genocide in 1918 that lasted only two years, or whether it was during the formation of the Soviet uh, Armenia. But their uh, ambitions or their uh, self-determination or their desire to become part of Armenia was defied by its integration into the Soviet uh, Azerbaijan. Stalin is the people's commissar for nationalities, and he's the one who put Karabakh uh, into Azerbaijani uh, territory. What was his motive? I mean, you suggested, was it simply divide and rule? Or did he want to curry favor with the regime in Turkey? Yeah, either favor in, in, in the case of Turkey, but also to cater to the ambitions of the newly created uh, Republic of Azerbaijan, because at the end of the day, Armenia does not have much to offer to the Soviet Union in terms of natural resources, but it's part of the kind of the dirty Soviet game of, because it's not only uh, Azerbaijan, it's also to do with Sunik, what today is called Zankezur, and Nakhichevan. So Armenians always have wanted to have Nakhichevan and Nagorno-Karabakh, but to that extent, these three provinces have been a source of contention for Azerbaijan. They are, they do have Nakhichevan, and Nakhichevan is not, they do not have geographical contiguity with Nakhichevan. And that's why we come to the latest 
which I can discuss later about the desire of Azerbaijan to take by force uh, some of the villages and to open by force a route that would connect Azerbaijan to Nakhichevan and from Nakhichevan to Turkey is part of the grand neo-Ottoman project of the pan-Turkic project of opening trade networks for economic benefits for the Republic of Turkey and that of Azerbaijan. You see a pan-Turkic ideology as a factor in this equation. Uh, yes, there is a type of pan-Turkic, but I, I, I can't say that specifically with the other Turkic republics, but for Turkey is the motto now between Azerbaijan and Turkey is that one nation, two states. And this is happening in the course of Erdogan's maximalist desires to have a saying in all parts of the of the of the Middle East, whether it's in uh, Libya, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in uh, Palestine, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in the Caucasus. But definitely, due to this war, Turkey has a more saying, a more clout within the region of the South Caucasus, and to that extent, Turkey played also a very dominant role in aiding Azerbaijan with the 2020 war with supporting military intelligence, with supporting military aid, equipment, but also its generals played an important role in directing uh, the war. So these are important aspects that we have to think that it is larger than what Karabakh is, the whole idea, it's about power politics, it's about proxy war, uh, Russian intervention, the Russian role, the Middle Eastern role, and Turkish role, and to that extent also Azerbaijan's uh, ambitions now as as the victorious party in this war to ask more from Armenia, specifically now wanting to have a corridor by force that would connect Azerbaijan to its other portion, which is Nakhichevan, which was passed through Meghri in the Sunni province, there is a fear that another war is going to start in the South Caucasus now that everyone is busy with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that that might also transpire there and no one is going to pay attention. Because as you can see, for eight to nine months, Nagorno-Karabakh was under siege and blockade. People were starving. And it was only in the last three weeks before the sea, before the war started, that international press started looking at what's happening in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, started condemning Azerbaijan. But you know, when you are a despotic regime, you don't care about what the international community is saying. But also, international communities is based on uh, their own interest. You know, oil. Uh, the British are interested in oil. Americans they have their own agendas agenda in the region. So. What about the United Nations? Why didn't the UN step in to end this uh, blockade and siege? Actually, uh, the during the blockade, the Armenians did appeal to the International Call of Justice in order to intervene to bring an end to the blockade. But that also did not work. The ICJ actually... On 22 February 2023, the court reached a legally binding ruling after 13 to 2 vote, thereby satisfying the request from Armenia and ordering Azerbaijan to take, and I quote, to take all measures at its disposal to ensure an impeded movement of persons, 
vehicles and cargo along the Lachin corridor in both directions. They issued this uh, uh, this order, legally binding ruling, but nothing happened. Azerbaijan did not, uh, you know, did not follow the orders of the International Court of Justice, and also this shows you to what extent despotic regimes really respect international law or disrespect. Uh, international law and for the in the case of uh, Azerbaijan it's backed by Turkey it's backed by even Russia to that extent so it doesn't care what the United Nations is saying as a matter of fact it was after the ethnic cleansing that took place in Nagorno-Karabakh that Azerbaijan allowed for the United Nations to send a mission to Nagorno-Karabakh and the mission came with some cars roaming around an empty city in Stepanagir, the capital, where there was no one left. And ironically, they wrote a report saying that there is no violence here and nothing uh, has been damaged, whereby uh, literally an ethnic cleansing has taken place. So again, it's the dysfunctional way in which United Nations functions. It's the way in which major power function. It's the way in which Armenia becomes sacrificed or Armenians become sacrificed for international, you know, political agendas. It's interesting to note, and you alluded to this uh, fact, that uh, people came very late to recognize what the impact of that siege and blockade was having on the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh, in in Armenian. Someone who should have known better, who's half Armenian, by the way, is Nicholas Kristof, writing in the New York Times on September 3rd, just a couple of weeks before the Azeri invasion. Uh, He wrote a piece saying, Are Armenians being ethnically cleansed? And then... On the very day of the Azerbaijani attack on Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh, there was a full-page ad in the New York Times warning people of a possible genocide. I mean, they couldn't see what was right in front of them? They saw, I think, but they were reluctant to write. My my, my words is not about Nicholas Kristof, but... Uh... Uh, it's about other uh, presses in, in, in general who did not really uh, want to see what was happening because the world is occupied by one war, which is the Ukrainian war, which is a proxy war between the West and the Russia, as you know. And to that extent, the far away you're from Europe, the less you're important to be covered as a case that needs to be to, that needs human attention. So in April. I wrote a long article which was published in uh, Genocide Studies International titled uh, Impunity, Apathy, and Lack of Humanitarian uh, Intervention in the Case of the uh, Blockade of the Lachin Corridor, which is the blockade actually, which is the only vein that provides, let's say, blood to Nagorno-Karabakh. And towards the conclusion, I said that there are two scenarios that's going to happen. The minimal scenario would be ethnic cleansing and maximum would be genocide. As a matter of fact, that's what happened. Ethnic cleansing took place. And people argue, for example, Azerbaijani officials keep arguing that, well, Armenians left. And even the international press doesn't have the audacity to say that there was an ethnic cleansing. They say Armenians left, left, where you're not leaving to go to a trip over a weekend. You're leaving because there is an existential threat. 
the Western media has been uh, always very biased towards Azerbaijan. I know there are interests, uh, British Petroleum. We've gotten used to these things, you know, be, being uncovered, let's say not covered, being uncovered by mainstream media. And when the time comes that the event takes place, all right, then we see a pouring of articles about the event itself, which I call ex post facto coverage by the international media. Well, I, we don't need ex post, ex post facto coverage. We need coverage when the thing is taking place or prevented. They say that genocide studies or genocide scholars study genocide to do two things, to understand why genocide takes place, and second, to prevent the happening of future crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansings, or acts of genocide. Again and yet again, the international community, whether it's the UN, whether it's the United States, whether it's the West, people think that relying on the West might alleviate the suffering of the Armenians. Others would say relying on Russians would alleviate the suffering of the Armenians. Well, I think relying on no one is much better than raising hopes of relying on this and that group because all groups, all parties involved, whether it's Russia or whether it's the EU or whether the United States, have interest or their own political interest to intervene. It's not only for humanitarianism. It's all part of the regional politics. It's all part of trying to have a foothold in the South Caucasus, realizing maybe that Russia is power is weaning there. Besides brokering the 2020 uh, peace accord, ending a 44-day war between the conflicting parties, the president of, the, of, the, of uh, Russia, Putin, it is said that uh, he was so fixated on Ukraine that he could not pay attention and fulfill his obligations uh, to the Armenians of Karabakh because, as you said earlier, Russia historically, at least over the last couple of centuries, has been a kind of uh, patron of uh, Armenia, a protector. Excellent question, David. Uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Uh, Armenia con considered always Russia as its security guarantor. Yeah? And Armenians of Artsakh considered Armenia as security guarantor. So when Russia failed with its duties to keep the security of Armenians of Armenia, then Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians were left alone. I don't buy the argument that Russia was unable to deal with the Caucasus, South Caucasus, because it's preoccupied with, uh, with, with Ukraine. Ukraine. I think that uh, it was Russia gave the green light for the 2020 war because nothing happens in the, that region without Russia's intervention. And maybe, I can't prove this, but the facts are there, that this is connected to the 2018 revolution uh, that took place in the Republic of Armenia. And the results of the revolution were more disastrous than the result of not having the revolution, because some people would argue that the revolution led to the uh, led to the uh, uh, revolution resulted in losing Nagorno-Karabakh. Because at the end of the day, Russia doesn't want to see color revolutions around its neighborhood. Ukraine was the same. I remember. Georgia was the same, and Armenia. I was always saying, Armenia, when is when the when is going to get the blow from Russia? And it did happen. It didn't happen through attacking Armenia, but happened through uh, through Nagorno-Karabakh. 
So some people might disagree with this, but this is my conviction that that's how things work. Russia is not weak in the South Caucasus. It has interests. It has also, it's part of the, uh, you know, it's it's an alliance with Armenia. So when the Azeris, as Azerbaijanis also attack Armenia and occupy 50 square miles from Armenia per se, Russia does not do anything. And Armenia is part of the SISTO, which is the Collective Security Treaty of Organization, which kind of a small NATO there. And at the beginning, they said, we cannot intervene Nagorno-Karabakh because Nagorno-Karabakh is de jure part of Azerbaijan. But now that Armenia has attacked and the Armenian government is saying that come and help us and they're saying, well, we can. So what kind of alliances is this? On the contrary, Russia has more positive relations with the Republic of Azerbaijan because it seems that they have more interest from there. If uh, At the end of the day, it's a medium Azerbaijan to sell Russian gas to Europe. And that's what EU does, comes and shakes hands the uh, Ursula, you know, the uh, chairman of the EU, uh, comes shakes hands with the with uh, Aliyev for the gas, you know, the energy crisis. And Armenians also always pay the price of, uh, you know, regional politics and uh, natural resources to that extent. But I said 2018 was disastrous, not because of its its ideals, you know. At the end of the day, no one wants to live under a despotic regime. But I've become more cynical about revolutions, whether it's the Arab Revolution, whether it's the Armenian Revolution. These revolutions, to that extent, have been, you know, failing because they're not happening in a vacuum. There are many governments who are interested in sabotaging these revolutions so that they do not head towards the democratic path. But Armenia still today, you know, within the within uh, kind of democratic path, I don't know what's going to happen. And that's a major, there's a major threat against Armenia by the uh, by Turkey and Azerbaijan. So it's uh, we're going to see what's going to happen when the when the issue comes to the corridor, the Zankezur corridor, because the Azerbaijanis Aliyev is adamant that that corridor should be opened. You cannot just enter a country and claim a road through the country, connecting to other parts. And say this is my corridor. That's that can't happen. Well, we'll see what the uh, so-called rules-based international order, uh, what its response would be to such an eventuality of uh, annexation of land, basically invasion and annexation. But uh, you mentioned the uh, distinguished uh, president. That's in quotes of uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Aliyev, Ilham. Aliyev, and I'm going. I'm not going to quote you. I'm going to quote a Richard Silverstein in Tikkun Olam. Uh, this is what he wrote about Ilham Aliyev. Uh, Azerbaijan is ruled by a corrupt dictator, who has amassed enormous wealth from the country's oil and other natural resources. He's stolen as much of it as he can to enrich himself and his interests. In 2013, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project declared him its corrupt person of the year. His greed and territorial ambitions have only grown since then. And then he goes on to write, Richard Silverstein, that there's an interesting alliance between 
Azerbaijan and Aliyev, and Israel and Netanyahu. Uh, Israel provides 70% of the countries of Azerbaijan's weapons over the last uh, five years. So talk about uh, the president of Azerbaijan and the relationship between Israel and Azerbaijan. Based on the freedom of house ranking of freedom of expression in Azerbaijan, it's nine uh, out of 100. Armenia is 50. Azerbaijan is nine. Uh, there is no freedom of expression. It's a despotic regime. Its own population is suffering. And think, how can Aliyev strengthen his despotic regimes through opening another war and claiming himself as the hero, etc., etc.? Whenever we speak about Azerbaijan, we're not speaking about the nation itself. The nation itself is a victim of the indoctrination of hatred, Armenophobia against Armenians. Uh, we're speaking about, against a corrupt regime, which is the heir to Haidar Aliyev, his father, who is a KGB official. Uh, official. And uh, Ilham took the reign in his hand and appointed his wife as the vice president and uh, he is, uh, you know, a corrupt figure who funnels millions of dollars involved in money laundering, caviar diplomacy. And may, everyone knows about the caviar diplomacy, the extent to where major political leaders come to Baku and they're being uh, given major gifts, uh, very expensive gifts, whether caviars or other gifts. Aliyev is corrupt. Uh, he uses the natural resources of his own country whereby there is poverty in his country and people are suffering in his country. Opposition is are imprisoned, opposition figures are in prison. And to that extent, it brings me now to the, not weird, but to the uh, kind of alliance with Israel. So experts estimate that Israel has supplied around 70% of Azerbaijan's arsenal between 2016 and 2020. Haaretz, for example, a major Israeli newspaper, counted that 92 Azerbaijani military cargo flights have landed to Ovda military airport in Israel between 2016 and 2020. And they purchased major Israeli weapons, which included intelligence-gathering drones, Hermes UAVs, Spike anti-tank missiles, Atmos self-propelled guns, Cardum mortars, Barak anti-aircraft missiles, searchers, Heron drones, Navy patrol ships, Typhoon gun mounts, Spike missiles, etc., etc. But mostly the Harops UAVs, which are suicide kamikaze drones. And with all that equipment, Azerbaijan attacked, supported by Turkish Bayraktars, Turkish intelligence commanders, by uh, jihadi fighters coming from Syria. And they thought that they could subjugate the armies of Nagorno-Karabakh in a couple of days. But it took 44 days. With all this military equipment, with all this technology, Armenians put a strong fight. But they suffered too. They lost the war. Armenians lost the war. And Azerbaijanis also if you think about it, lost the war because thousands of their own soldiers were killed, who were sent to the front by Aliyev in order to achieve his territorial ambition and strengthen his corrupt legitimacy within the country as a supreme leader. Israel has other 
objectives. Oil that it gets from Azerbaijan, but also Iran is an extremely important aspect. Iran is not happy with the results of the Nagorno-Karabakh war. Iran knows that Israeli Mossad intelligence is very active in Azerbaijan and monitoring the activity of the Iranians. The one thing I can say for sure, the Israeli weaponry played an important role in the ethnic cleansing of Armenians. This is not me saying. These are articles that have been written by Haaretz newspaper, the second most widely circulated newspaper in Israel. The people know the role of Israel in the defeat of the Armenians, in the towards the end, in the ethnic cleansing of the Armenians. Maybe not direct role, indirect role, but to that extent giving the superiority, strengthening the military superiority of Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan's military budget is a couple of billion dollars per year, which totals all the budget of the Republic of Armenia. And it has tons of money that can buy anything from Israel. And it comes down also, David, to the fact that Israel has never recognized the Armenian genocide. And there could be a correlation here. You know, had Israel recognized the Armenian genocide, would it be also complicit in helping another entity to commit crimes against Armenians? So that's a kind of the moral question here. But always Israel has played on the card of the Armenian genocide, the fear of the threat of recognizing it in its own businesses with Turkey and with Azerbaijan. You're listening to Bedros Dermatosyan, Armenia, Artsakh, and Azerbaijan. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So Israel joins with Turkey and Azerbaijan in denying uh, what is often called the first state-directed genocide of the 20th century. It's more than ironic that two peoples, the Armenians and the Jewish people, were subjected uh, to a genocide. Now, you've edited a new book called Denial of Genocide, in the 21st century. Talk about uh, the Armenian genocide and how it intersects and reverberates today with Armenians and others around the world. It's a comparative study on denial of genocides in general in the 21st century. And I chose seven to eight cases of genocide denial that include but are not limited to the Armenian Genocide, to the Holocaust, to the Cambodian Genocide, to the Guatemalan Genocide, to the Bosnian Genocide, to the Rwandan Genocide, and to the crimes of genocide perpetrated by the Assad regime against its, his own citizens. The idea was to see what and how denial has changed in 21st century with the introduction of social network, of court cases, bringing people to court uh, when, when you start uh, using the word genocide, using the medium of academic presses in order to promote genocide denial. 
They say that genocide denial is the last step of uh, the uh, Gregory Stanton, for example, has 10 stages of genocide. The last stage is denial. But I argue that denial is not the last stage. Denial is the first stage because when you are committing genocide, you're also denying it through your propaganda, through your uh, extensive diplomatic networks of showing that this is not the case. Look at these images, fabricated images. And we see this happening in all cases of genocide. The Armenian, I've dedicated three chapters to the Armenian genocide. And people would ask why the Armenian genocide has three chapters and Rwanda has one, etc. It's simply because the Armenian genocide is the only genocide that has a state sponsoring its denial, the state spending millions of dollars to deny the Armenian genocide through lobbying and through using its all networks, all diplomatic networks, whether these are the embassies, the uh, consulates, cultural centers around the globe, student unions, associations, everything that has any connection would become part of this denial networks. And of course, the orders go from this ministry, from the cabinet to the uh, diplomatic staff, and it eventually goes down to the just one person who is either an attaché of culture attaché or a person who's working in the university or students, etc. So Turkey until today denies the fact that the genocide has taken place. It spends millions of dollars. And we see that today the denial of genocide has also taken place, taking new heights in all denials of genocides due to the rise of right-wing governments, whether it's under Trump, whether it's under Orban, whether it's under Erdogan, whether it's under all types of right-wing governments, there is denial, there is Islamophobia, there is anti-Semitism, and all of this are part of the 21st century. I was talking today in my human rights class who was saying that people thought that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Western liberalism triumphed and everyone was going to you know, become democratic. But that's not the case. We see much more violations in human rights record in the 21st century than in the end of the 20th century, not only by despotic governments, but by democratic governments too. So the aim of the book, Denial of Genocide in 21st Century, to show the, to show the readers in a comparative perspective, an interdisciplinary perspective, the different methodologies, techniques used by denialists in order to deny the respective genocides of the 20th century, not only the 20th century, but also denial of the indigenous genocide in our own country here, in the United States, whereby you see certain policies passed by President Trump uh, affecting the uh, indigenous population, removal of sacred sites, and uh, policies of marginalization of indigenous population. And people say, well, if you want to preach about the talk about the Armenian genocide, why shouldn't we talk about the indigenous genocide first in the United States? And that's right, because that's the most important aspect in this country, to go back to the history of the, of the, uh, of the formation of this country and discuss about the injustices and the genocides that have been inflicted upon the native indigenous population. Nikol Pashinyan is the prime minister of the Republic of Armenia, and it's fair to say he's between a rock and a hard place. There have been, subsequent to the catastrophe in Nagorno-Karabakh, Astak, 
demonstrations in Yerevan, the republic's capital, calling for his uh, ouster. Now, he made a slight pivot to the U.S. Uh, recently when he allowed a few score uh, U.S. troops to do training exercises with uh, Armenian troops. I wonder if that uh, ruffled Putin's uh, feathers a bit. What do you think about his uh, performance? And also comment on the significance of the Armenian parliament ratifying membership in the International Criminal Court. You know, Pashinyan came into power and there was, you know, the euphoria of revolution. And as it happened in the Arab Spring, all of us were happy, etc. But soon the political situation changed in Armenia. And uh, sometimes maybe opposition powers cannot be governments, you know. And uh, to that extent, he did a lot of changes, I would, I would think, specifically dealing with oligarchy in terms of foreign policy. Uh, the government has been weak. I think Pashinyan should have resigned when the war was lost in 2020. But he stayed in, in power. He stayed in power in order to continue what he sees as a democratic path of Armenia. The fear is that, as you said, between the hard place and the anvil, it's like either Pashinyan, it seems, or either the return of the ancien regime. And I call this ancien regime, the regime that has been filled by oligarchy who were, have good ties with uh, Moscow. So this is an important thing is that it's difficult, I would see that, how the government would act in this difficult situation. But realizing that, Pashinyan, realizing that Moscow is no more the same Moscow that used to be in the past protecting Armenian interests, Pashinyan started deviating more towards the West. He sent his wife to Ukraine to send gifts to the kids in Ukraine. He participated. He he agreed to agreed for U.S. U.S. troops to participate. And by the way, these part these uh, apparently these uh, exercises were taking place uh, along the years, and now it became much more dominant because of the tilting to to, to the West. And eventually, now. The last thing is ICC, becoming part of ICC to, of course, all of this done intentionally to anger Russia. And people are angry in Armenia against Russia because Russia failed to fulfill its promises to protect Armenia. At the end of the day, there are Russian-Armenian alliance, military alliance. Uh, Russian troops are positioned in Armenia. And when you're part of the collective security treaty organization and you don't even help Armenia when its own land is being invaded, then it raises major question. Now, it's a, it's a difficult thing. I mean, uh, tilting towards the West, what would the West bring to Armenians? I doubt that they're going to bring major change, help Armenians to rise, you know, uh, to stand on its feet. We saw Samantha Power from USAID, the administrator, came to Armenia uh, brought $11.5 million. Uh, that was a token given to Armenians. And it was very ironic that, you know, we're, we're tired of seeing humanitarian aid that comes ex post facto after events take place, just to show that United States is interested. I don't think United interested is interested in Armenians. They're interested in the region. They want to have a foot in the region of the Caucasus and South Caucasus. And the, the worst thing that Armenia could become is another proxy center between the West and Russia with its acolytes such as Azerbaijan. 
Samantha Power, incidentally, was uh, Obama's ambassador to the United Nations, and she was completely silent on the question of recognition of the Armenian genocide, which is kind of ironic because you must be familiar with her book about genocide, which begins with the assassination of one of the principal architects of the genocide, Talat Pasha, on a street in uh, Berlin. But let me talk to you about another architect of that 1915 Turkish genocide, Enver Pasha. There's a report that Azerbaijani soldiers have a shoulder patch with Enver's picture on it, uh, celebrating him as a, as a kind of uh, a hero. I mean, should people be outraged and offended by this? Imagine if a German uh, soldier had a, you know, a picture of Hitler on his uh, shoulder patch. Those were part of the badge that the soldiers were wearing. The badge has the uh, image of Enver Pasha on it. And there is a writing around the badge that says, don't escape Armenia, you'll die of exhaustion. And there is the Anwar Pasha in the middle. It's not that the badge only. Now, Azerbaijan also named one of the streets in Stepanakert in the name of Anwar Pasha. So uh, Azerbaijan's larger policy that it's presenting to the West is that Armenians now we're trying Armenians to reintegrate the Azerbaijan society. I would really support that reintegration if Azerbaijan was Switzerland, if Azerbaijan was Denmark. But this is a despotic regime that has been indoctrinating its own population for 30 years with anti-Armenism, Armenianism and Armenophobia. Who would want to live in Artsakh under the Azerbaijani despotic regime. Today, 100, above 100,000 Armenians were cleansed, ethnically cleansed, and they're in Armenia. How are you going to convince them to go back to their homes and live under Azerbaijan, where their children have been killed during the war, where their fathers have been killed, where their families have been maimed, where their uh, grandmothers have been tortured, I mean, who would go and live there? That's why, for example, the biggest mistake that Pashinyan did, for example, he gave up on Nagorno-Karabakh. He recognized the borders that it belonged to Azerbaijan. I was going to ask you about that. Why would he do that? I don't know. I mean, whereas Azerbaijan has never, has did not recognize the territorial integrity of Armenia, which is 29,800 kilometer square, and Armenia recognized the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. And that's why people are angry at the Pashinyan administration of how come you just sold the most important Armenian cause after the genocide, which is the Karabakh question. It could be he was under pressure. It could be he was thinking that support is going to come from the West. He was thinking, or he was inept even to deal with the situation in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Or maybe they told him, if you accept this, if you accept the territorial integrity, then it would prevent further aggression of Azerbaijan against the Republic of Armenia per se. But that didn't, that didn't work. 
recognizing or not recognizing. And what Russia is saying that now is that we can't we can't do anything because Pashinyan has recognized the territorial integrity, which includes Nagorno-Karabakh. Speaking of the refugees, the more than hundred thousand that have fled Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh, their ancestral home. Uh, the issue, current issue of The Guardian has a couple of the refugees saying, I'm quoting, I will never go back. We are lost. We have no homes, nowhere to go. What happens now to the historic Armenian cultural treasures that are in Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh, now that Azerbaijan has full control I mean, ethnic cleansing is coupled also with cultural genocide. With the 2020 war, uh, Azerbaijan has also destroyed many important monuments. And there's the erasing of churches, for example, you know, totally erasing of churches. And now Karabakh is not only, or Artsakh is not only an important Armenian, has important historic Armenian connection, but it has the first Armenian school in the monastery of Amaras where Mesrop Mashtos, the person who, the saint who invented the Armenian letters, taught there. You have other major important monasteries and churches. What's the fate of this? Now, there are, there is some rumors that the biggest uh, church in Karabakh, which is in Shushi, Artsakh, is going to be turned into a mosque. You know? I haven't verified that. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I wouldn't be surprised. You know, So, the cultural legacy legacy is in danger. But more importantly for me, I mean, there is a cultural genocide going on. More importantly is the living human beings. For them, their homeland is not Armenia. Those who were ethnically cleansed from Artsakh, their homeland is not Armenia. Their homeland is Artsakh. That's where they grew up. That's where they live. That's where they got their education. That's they were, you know, uh, worked on the lands as peasants, as uh, industrialists, etc. So this is that's their homeland, and bringing them to Armenia, it's not like solving the question. It's like taking one group and sending them to another country, or not bringing, but they being ethnically cleansed. But again, it's better than if you think about that. As at least they have somewhere to go. They were able to leave our ethnically cleansed forcefully displaced and go to Armenia and, you know, uh, move to Armenia. Otherwise, it would have been disastrous. There is no confidence, David, in the Azerbaijani authorities that they're going to allow Armenians to live in peace in the region if they come back. Of course, France today is trying to pass a resolution or something in the UN would entail uh, allowing the Armenians to go back under international guarantees. That's also very suspicious, I think, because international community have failed the Armenians. What international guarantees are you going to establish in a despotic country? There is no such a thing as international guarantee in a despotic country where you have one family ruling. Uh, perhaps a harbinger of things to come in terms of these cultural treasures is what happened to the famous Armenian Khachkars in Nakhchevan. There's a local scholar here in the Denver area, Simon Marakian, who has written about this, who has documented 
that these great cultural monuments uh, have been desecrated and and uh, destroyed. So uh, don't mind me saying, but uh, Armenians have a tendency to engage in infighting, uh, a lot of finger pointing, instead of focusing on unity and coming together. How do you overcome that tendency? Factionalism has always been a characteristic of Armenians because they never had political entity, political progression. The last kingdom fell in 1375, Cilicia, and from 1375, the second experience of having an independence republic was in two years, and then they went uh, under the Soviet regime. So lack of nationhood, first, lack of political experience, because whatever they had was Soviet political experience, which does not work in the post-Soviet period, I think. And factionalism is also part of the, I should say, the uh, Armenian uh, political system. Uh, you know, the you know David, the joke, two Armenians, three political parties, you know, you know this joke, two Armenians, three political parties. And disunity has been the major foe for the Armenians, disunity. Because you have different political parties, you have different interests. Armenians do not have the luxury to decide their own future unanimously. That's the problem. There is no overarching ideology or an objective that can bring Armenians to one under one umbrella. Maybe the genocide is the overarching common denominator that can bring Armenians under one umbrella. But besides that, I don't see a movement. I mean, 1988, there was a national movement, which was strong. But then let the, there was the uh, earthquake and then the Karabakh, first Karabakh war, etc. But there is no overarching identity, especially today, post-2020 war, that Armenia is ravaged by internal divisions. Some parties are catering Russian Federation. Others are catering Western interests. So I would say that Armenia has become a proxy place for international political agendas. Well, where do you see U.S. and Armenia relations uh, going? I'm sure Washington would love to have Armenia out of the Russian orbit and into its uh, hegemonic configurations. That's what the United States wants. I don't think that's going to happen. Again, with the presumption that we're not, be- we're not going to benefit anything from the West or Russia to that extent. As you said, you know, uh, unity is the most important factor that can bring Armenians together and build, strengthen the infrastructure of the country, which has been shaken recently by the war. You know, you see what democracy brought to Armenia too. You know, uh, the West always keeps bragging that other countries, Eastern countries are not democratic. And when democracy prevails and the results come out, and then you are... Uh, you are not helping them, and they're alone in, in that fight. And the neighborhood is a neighborhood of despotic regimes. You know, you have Azerbaijan, you have Russia, you have uh, other, other places, you know. so Turkey. Turkey, yeah. Turkey has, has changed, you know, since Erdogan's arrival into power. Uh, with his, uh, you know, neo-Ottomanism, uh, maximalism, and his clout in North Africa, in uh, Caucasus, in the Middle East, and other places. 
So uh, uh, from the U.S. perspective, they do want to mobilize Armenians to remove it from the uh, from the first of all from the Sisto uh, organization, Collective Security Treaty organization. But the major question: Would Russia allow that to happen? Would it use again Azerbaijan or Turkey in order, quote unquote, teach Armenia a lesson of not leaving, you know, not deviating from your path? Again, the real challenge would be if Armenia tells the Russian troops in Armenia, go home, you know, would it dare to do something like that? Will it dare do something like that? So Armenia, again, doesn't have the luxury to play this game. And finally, what gives you hope? As you look to the future, hope is an important word. I think I'm a I'm a pessimist, but maybe my pessimism gives me more energy to work in order to try to bring hope. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a diplomat. I'm not a politician. I'm a scholar, and the uh, and the path that I have is scholarship, publishing as much as I can in order to raise awareness, but injustices that have taken place against Armenians in the course of centuries whether it's in the Armenian genocide, whether it's today's condition, but also I teach about comparative genocide, I teach about Palestinian history, about the conflict, I teach also about human rights. So my idea is that justice should be also dealt in in general with all types of human rights violations around the globe. I don't want to only confine myself and talk, we Armenians have suffered, okay, you suffered, that's fine, but there are other people who are suffering around the globe, and you have to have a much larger picture and image and start doing comparative studies to understand the, you know, the situation. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. You were just listening to Bedros Dermatosyan, Armenia, Artsakh, and Azerbaijan. I talked with him in mid-October. Bedros Dermatosyan is Professor of Modern Middle East History at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Michael Parenti, Arundhati Roy, and Noam Chomsky. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Bedros Dermatosyan, Armenia, Artsakh, and Azerbaijan, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's one 800 triple four one nine seven seven or you can go online our website alternative radio.org that's alternative radio.org printed transcripts pdfs and mp3s of this program are free of charge just call us one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven Special thanks to Lucine Gasparian and to KGNU. Joey is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Isabel Baidarakian, 
singing Grum, a classic Armenian song expressing separation and the longing for one's home. <laughs> 